Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Dr. Justin Burke, and due to a mild technical issue, I will be doing our intro solo. But tonight's show features co-host Dr. Krista Chumanchu and our wonderful producer, Dr. Sam Mazur. Our guest tonight was Dr. Mike Fahey, who is here to discuss congenital heart disease and congestive heart failure. But first, let's remind you about the show. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Mike Fahey. He comes to us from the University of Massachusetts, where he's the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology and also Program Director for the Pediatric Residency Program. He's the recipient of multiple teaching awards across all training levels. And today he'll teach us the secrets to understanding congenital heart disease, how to approach patients with these conditions when they present to the hospital for non-cardiac complaints, and gives us some insight into the physiology of single ventricle lesions such as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. We were so fortunate to have him. We hope you enjoy all the wonderful content. Without further ado, let's get to it. <laughs> Dr. Fahey, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We're so excited to have you. Um, let me start by asking, we're very informal. Is it okay if we call you Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. And yeah, please do call me Mike. Excellent. Mike, thank you so much for having us. We have our excellent producer, Sam Mazur, with us. I think the world of him. He thinks the world of you. And so I have been very eager to do this show with you. We're excited to have you. Excellent. Thanks again for having me. I'm excited to do it. Amazing. So we like to kind of start by getting to know our guests a little bit better. And we do a little bit of rapid fire questions. One of the first questions we always ask is, can you just kind of describe yourself? You can use a one-liner like we do in patients or anything about you, maybe something that's non-medically related. Yeah, sure. So I guess you could probably describe me as a, a recovering trout fishing addict who dabbles <laughs> in pediatric cardiology and medical education. That, that's probably how I would describe myself. Wow. What? Uh, I, I know nothing about <laughs> trout fishing. What? I don't even know what a follow-up question to that. What's the largest, <laughs> what's the largest trout you've ever caught? Well, that's, so that's the thing. I mean, it, with trout, it's not so much about how big the fish is. They're just, they're beautiful. They're, they're, they can be very difficult to catch. And, um, you know, a lot of it, it, it's all fly fishing. So I like tying my own flies as well. And, and that's really fun when you get to kind of get these raw materials, you tie it into something that's kind of interesting looking, you toss it in a stream and it catches you, you know, one of these beautiful little gems that that's what it's all about. What a great metaphor for life. Uh, it seems like a meditative type of thing. Yeah, as well. definitely. 100%. Yep. Zen in the art of fly fishing. Absolutely. <laughs> So my favorite question is to ask, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so uh, failures, um, we all struggle with them, right? Uh, you know, it, it, it's tough to pick out, you know, one in particular because they all, you know, they all kind of blend together and you're always kind of disappointed in yourself. You know, one thing that I thought was a, a real challenge that I had to deal with when I was in college, I actually, uh, I used to play lacrosse and I blew out both of my ACLs spanned out by about two years. And while that's not necessarily a failure, I guess my knees failed on me. But um, <laughs> but that challenge, I think, was really uh, really helped uh, kind of shape my character and really 
got me to be a little bit more zen about stuff to say, hey, look, you know, things things are not going to always go your way, buddy. And you just have to, you know, get up in the morning and, and do the work and uh, do what you need to get done uh, uh, in order to kind of move to the next step, move, move past those challenges. So that, that's, I guess, uh, probably a good example for me that, that, that I learned a lot from. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. What's the best advice you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher or really any part you got in your career? Yeah, sure. So probably the the best piece of advice, maybe not so much as a learner, but more as a junior attending is the advice to that it's okay to say no to stuff. Because <laughs> people are going to come to you and, and that, you know, you could take that the wrong way. People are going to come to you with a lot of opportunities. It's an important and it's important to pick up those opportunities and, and take advantage of them when they when they offer themselves. But if you are constantly saying yes to stuff, you're not going to be able to take full advantage of, of the of the opportunities that are given to you because all of a sudden you're going to be committed to 25 different things and you're not going to have the time or the energy to get any of those things done. So that's a hard lesson to learn. And I, I mean, that's one that I'm still working on because I still I'm still a yes guy. I still say, oh, yeah, I can do that. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll do that. But but it ends up <laughs> it's it, so, again, I'm working on that. But uh, it's it's really good advice. And, and it's about, you know, as you go through your career, figuring out which of the things that you can say no to, and that's okay. And which of those things, which of those rare opportunities that you can really sink your teeth into, and, and that can kind of take your career uh, different places. Well, we appreciate you saying yes to coming on the podcast yes. and hope that it really, you know, I, it sounds like you've done some pretty good things, but I think this is really going to be just skyrocketing the, the opportunities <laughs> for medical. Yeah. All right. Let's learn about congestive heart disease. In fact, uh, Sam, do you want to start us off by by kind of reading our first case? Absolutely. So we have an awesome case from uh, Cash Lat Children's. So we have a patient, Bart. So he's a two-month-old, ex-full-term, previously healthy baby boy. He's coming in with a week of poor feeding, lethargy, and tachypnea. Um, he does not have a fever, but his tachypnea is worse with feeding. And upon performing your exam, you notice he's afebrile, slightly tachycardic, and mildly tachypnic. But also you notice scattered wheezing on lung auscultation, uh, subcostal retractions, a palpable liver, and you hear a murmur. Although we'll keep our differential broad, we are concerned about congestive heart failure here for Bart. So what are the signs of decompensated heart failure in a young infant? And, um, and perhaps we can start there. Yeah, sure. So um, talking about congestive heart failure, I think it, it, it's important to kind of take a step back and think about what we mean by congestive heart failure. Because most, um, most students who are going through medical school, they think of congestive heart failure through the lens of uh, pump failure, where you've had, for example, ischemic heart disease, you just had a heart attack, and so all of a sudden your left ventricle isn't working very well. And as a result of that left ventricle not working well, you get a backup of flow, right? The, the, the blood just backs up into your lungs. And so that's where the idea of heart failure and congestion kind of come together. And then, of course, the, the backup doesn't stop with the lungs. The backup continues through the right side of the heart. Everybody learns, right, the most common cause of right-sided heart failure is left-sided heart failure. And so then you get the backup uh, into the systemic venous system, which you know, causes things like hepatomegaly and JVD and peripheral edema and that sort of thing. When you think about congestive heart failure from a, uh, through a lens of congenital heart disease, it's usually not a pump failure. The, the pump is usually working just fine. But the problem is, is that uh, you, uh, there's a variety of lesions that result in too much blood going over to the lungs, and then that creates uh, a volume overload on the left side of the heart. And so we were talking before about congestive heart failure 
people focusing on the heart failure piece from a congenital uh, heart disease standpoint, we think of congestive heart failure much more from the congestion piece of it. There's too much blood going uh, to the lungs, and then all that blood needs to get you know, stuffed through the left side of the heart that's already volume overloaded. And so you get this traffic jam uh, of blood in the lungs. And again, that traffic jam backs up through the right side of the heart and it backs up into the systemic venous system. And so then you might say, well, wait a minute, those sound like two different things. Why do we use the same name for them? Well, congestive heart failure isn't a, it's not a single condition. It's a constellation of physical findings that describe a physiologic state. And so if you if you have pump failure, you have ischemic heart disease, or say you have, you're a kid and you have a cardiomyopathy or myocarditis or something like that, that, that would cause diminished heart function. Well, what hap- what does your body do to, uh, to, to react in that situation? Well, if you have pump failure, you get activation of the sympathetic nervous system to try to buy back some of your contractility that you've lost. That extra adrenaline that's floating around uh, ends up creating side effects like sweating, right? Diaphoresis. It ends up ca- uh, causing peripheral color changes, so like perioral cyanosis or acrocyanosis of the hands and feet. Um, <clears throat> what are the other uh, what are the other compensatory mechanisms? That backup of blood into the lungs, uh, you have this congestion of blood there. You start getting uh, uh, fluid squeezing out of the uh, of the vascular space into the interstitial space, and that interstitial stretch uh, causes a reflex tachypnea, just like it does in asthmatic patients. Right when you get that that breath stacking and that interstitial stretch that causes reflex tachypnea. So um, that, that's what helps to explain the uh, tachypnea in these cases. Again, from a congenital heart disease standpoint, where you don't have pump failure, the, what's going on there is that the heart has to produce a supernormal cardiac output, right? Because it's, it's pumping not just one cardiac output, but it's going to be pumping all that extra blood that's going to the lungs as well. So the left ventricle might have to uh, you know, do two, three, four X the amount of work and how does it achieve that? It does that by activation of the sympathetic nervous system, just like we kind of talked about. Uh, so you get you know, tachycardia, you get increased contractility. And by the way, activation of the sympathetic nervous system causes downstream changes like activation of the renin-angiotensin system, which then you know, causes things like fluid retention, which we'll talk, which we'll talk about you know, as, as you get into more uh, chronic congestive heart failure. Uh, then you're, you're talking about a patient who becomes very fluid overloaded in the long term. And we'll probably talk about fluid management uh, in these kids as well. But that's the kind of you know, overview to think about when we say congestive heart failure, what are we talking about? And we're talking about a constellation of signs and symptoms that describe the physiologic state of that sympathetic activation, which is a response to either pump failure or congestion, an, an overcirculation through the pulmonary circuit and volume overload on the left side of the heart. And can I ask, with all those compensatory me- measures that we often see clinically, like the tachypnea the or the oral cyanosis, I imagine it's a full spectrum in that some patients with milder congestion have milder symptoms. We admit patients all the time for failure to thrive, and on the differential is always congestive heart failure, even when there's no other symptoms. Are there specific things that we should look for in the clinic or in the ED or in the hospital that maybe have a higher likelihood ratio are, are that things that are really pointing to this is a sign that it's a cardiac lesion? Or do you ever have kids that are failure to thrive and it's this kid's breathing fine, he doesn't have an enlarged liver, we're good? Yeah, exactly. When, when you're dealing with a, a kid and, and, and they're 
you're not really sure what's going on, right? They don't, maybe they don't have an established diagnosis of congenital heart disease, in, but, but congenital heart disease is on the differential. Well, one, you know, one thing that I'm going to ask you if you call me from the emergency department is, uh, hey, Justin, have you, you know, have you done the abdominal exam? Do you feel, do you feel that liver edge poking down below the right costal margin? You know, do you hear uh, crackles or rails on the physical exam? Um, if you happen to have gotten a chest X-ray, does the chest X-ray look wet to you? Do, do the lungs look congested? And if the answer to those questions are no, then it, it's not congested. You know, it's not congestive heart failure that's causing the tachypnea, for example, in a, in, in a kid like that. So to follow up on that, um, so what are the major? Are there other mimickers then? What 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 else should be on our differential that we need to make sure we rule out when we have a patient that may be presenting like this, but maybe in the not so floridly, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely some of the respiratory uh, symptoms, I think, can be foolers. So sometimes uh, people will present with uh, more of like a wheezing pattern than, than maybe just the, the, the straight up crackles and rails. Um, and, and that can fool people, especially if the kid has a history of reactive airway disease or mild asthma or something. They come in with those symptoms and you say, oh, sounds like asthma. It's probably just an asthma exacerbation. But you know, dig a little deeper and and see. Well, you know, does the does the history really line up with that with that diagnosis or not? Or, or is there something that's not quite adding up? You know, for example, you know, maybe the kid has uh, has had very well controlled asthma, but then all of a sudden, you know, they've they've been in the ED, you know, three times over the past week with with recurrent or persistent symptoms. Huh? Maybe this isn't that mild intermittent asthma. Maybe there's something else going on here. And so, for these patients where we're still having congestive heart failure. Um, as on the differential diagnosis, we're going through their charts and we see, oh, on the newborn exam, they passed the CCHD. That's a con critical congenital heart disease screen. So they don't have congenital heart disease. Why is that not right? And what are the causes of congenital heart disease that might be missed on newborn screening that we should still be paying attention to later on in life? And at what age maybe do they present? Yeah, sure. So Remember the congenital heart disease screening that happens in the newborn um, in the newborn nursery is really screening for cyanotic congenital heart disease. It's looking for an abnormal oxygen saturation or an abnormal difference in oxygen saturation between the upper and lower extremity, which might indicate that the the patient has some sort of ductal dependent kind of lesion, and that's why you get these differential oxygen levels between upper and lower extremity. So. Remember the, the the majority of congenital heart disease that we see are, are are more straightforward things like atrial septal defects, ventricular septal defects, and you're going to be fine on your congenital heart disease screening with a with an ASD or a VSD, uh, and that's because th those are uh, those are uh, left to right shunting lesions, and therefore your oxygen level should be totally normal, unless you're in such bad congestive heart failure that you're actually having you know, a gas exchange problem. But, but, but by that point, you're going to be in really, you're going to have really severe symptoms of congestive heart failure. So it won't be a mystery. So that said, you might say, well, if somebody had bad enough congenital heart disease, no matter what it is, you know, how could that kid possibly get through the nursery and escape detection? Even if, even if it was, you know, okay, it was a left to right shunt, so their oxygen level was normal. But how would they, how would they, you know, get through there without showing some, you know, murmur on their physical exam or what have you? And you have to remember that um, somebody can have a, let, let's just take a ventricular septal defect as an example. Very common, right? One in 200 live births uh, have ventricular septal defects. The incidence might even be higher than that because it's not like we automatically echo every newborn uh, baby. And as I'm about to try to describe to you, 
VSDs are a perfect example of something that can evade detection in the first several days of life. So a VSD, that's just a hole in the ventricular septum. And so typically what happens is right after the baby's born, the pulmonary vascular resistance is still rather high. And so if we were to imagine ourselves as a red blood cell and you're coming back from the body uh, into the right side of the heart, you go through the right atrium, you go through the right ventricle, and now all of a sudden you realize that you have a choice. You could go through the VSD over to the aorta, or you could go out to the pulmonary circulation. And in a newborn who has relatively elevated resistance, uh, it's still probably not going to be as high as the systemic circulation, but it might be relatively elevated. And so you're going to say, okay, well, it's a little bit of an easier road to go out to the lungs, so you do that. And then when you come back to the left side of the heart, you kind of say, oh, let's look, it's a little bit easier to go across that VSD and back out to the lungs. But maybe, maybe the differential there is not very big. And so you can have a large VSD, but if your pulmonary vascular resistance is still relatively high, you won't be shunting a lot of blood. And because you're not shunting a lot of blood, you're not going to be able to hear that characteristic murmur of the VSD. Now, what happens over the next couple of weeks? The pulmonary vascular resistance undergoes its uh, normal decline. It usually hits its uh, nadir around 10 to 14 days of life. And that's oftentimes where uh, patients present with left to right shunting lesions because that's when their pulmonary vascular resistance is hit its bottom, its, you know, its, its uh, lowest level. And then it usually stays there for the rest of your life if you're, if you're otherwise healthy. But uh, that's what precipitates that left to right shunting because now all of a sudden the path of least resistance is clearly out to the lungs and you start to get massive amounts of flow through that VSD. And that's when that murmur comes out. And that's when all those symptoms come out from all that uh, pulmonary overcirculation and left-sided volume overload. And this is great. So this I, one of the teaching points I'm taking away with this is that on that 14-day newborn check is where we're really paying special attention to see if there's newer murmurs that are not new of the pathophysiology, but that the pulmonary uh, artery resistance is going down so we can, we can catch them a little bit earlier. That's exactly correct. And a lot of times, you know, babies will have a transient murmur in, in the nursery. And we think that a lot of those are, you know, it's the ductus arteriosus closing and then finally going away. So they have this transient murmur for a day or two, and then it goes away. But you're absolutely right. If you hear a new murmur uh, at that, you know, one or two week check, especially in a baby who you notice, hey, that baby's breathing a little faster. Um, you know, they're having trouble keeping up with feeds because they seem to be getting really out of breath when they're, when they're trying to, uh, when they're trying to nurse or whatever. Uh, those are some real, um, you know, red flags that, Hey, there might be something going on here. And just a follow-up question, I guess, to that. So, you know, often we hear the cardiologist tell the parents, um, and we tell them as well, you know, Hey, your child has a small hole in his heart and it's just going to close on its own, not to worry. But how do these, you know, VSDs or even ASDs as well become symptomatic? Yeah. So thankfully, atrial septal defects, even when they're large, tend to be relatively asymptomatic. They, ASDs just don't uh, cause a whole lot in the way of symptoms. And the reason for that is, uh, there's a couple different reasons. One is the degree of shunting through a VSD almost always is, is uh, more than the shunt through a VSD of similar size. And that just has to do with the fact that the driving force in, a sh in an ASD shunt has to do with ventricular compliance. It has to do with the right heart typically relaxes a little bit more easily than the left side of the heart, and that's what drives the left to right flow. The other thing, importantly, is while you get pulmonary overcirculation in an ASD, when that blood comes back to the left atrium, it has a nice big pop-off valve to be able to go right over to the right side of the heart again. So you never build up those very high left atrial pressures that you would, uh, for example, develop in a VSD 
that then back up into the lungs. So that hydrostatic pressure buildup is not really a, a problem in an ASD. And as a result of that, they don't really develop congestive heart failure symptoms the way that a VSD or a PDA would. Obviously, when we diagnose a ventricular septal defect, you know, we just said that atrial septal defects are going to be relatively asymptomatic. And as a result of that, we have the luxury of being able to wait around and wait for those things to spontaneously close, which, which most of them will. Uh, and if they're going to uh, close spontaneously, they usually do so in the first two to three years of life. That, that's both for atrial septal defects and the majority of ventricular septal defects. I'll come back and talk about VSDs in a minute. So ASDs, though, um, we tell parents, look, you know, these things have, they're, they're very unlikely to cause big symptoms, and uh, they have an excellent chance of spontaneous closure. And guess what? If they don't uh, close on their own these days, uh, whereas in the old days, uh, that might uh, have required a surgery to fix. These days, most atrial septal defects can be taken care of uh, with a transcatheter device closure. So you, you don't even need an open heart surgery to close that hole. A device can be delivered via catheter um, you know, to the inside of the heart. The device is deployed in a way that it's almost, it almost looks like two discs uh, that kind of fit uh, into one another. Uh, they're made out of this fine, flexible metal mesh that rolls up inside the catheter. And then when the catheter is in place, the device is deployed, it springs into shape and closes the hole. So that's a really nice option. And, and um, the kids have to be a little bit bigger in order to tolerate the catheters being put into their hearts. Um, but again, if, if an ASD is relatively asymptomatic, you, you have all the time in the world to kind of wait around until they're big enough to, to need something like that. Ventricular septal defects, um, not all of them will close spontaneously. Um, most of the ones that we see are in the membranous portion of the septum or the muscular portion of the septum. And both of those definitely have the uh, potential to close. And, and I would say that most of them will, especially when they're small to start off with. And then it really becomes a matter of, how big is the hole? Uh, and we, we would do an echocardiogram to kind of determine how big the hole is. And that will help us to determine what's the likelihood that this thing is going to cause symptoms. Because for example, if we make that diagnosis right after birth and we say, oh, look, we see a moderate size hole here. But again, that kid might be asymptomatic in the nursery because the pulmonary resistance is high. But I'll tell that family, you know, this, this hole, it looks like it's a pretty decent size. We're going to expect to see the evolution of some of these symptoms. And you go through the the process of describing what uh, CHF symptoms look like so that they it's not a surprise to them and that, and that they know to bring the baby back in if they start to see those. And then it's a matter of, can we get those congestive heart failure symptoms under control with medication? And if the answer is yes, great. You know, the baby hopefully is growing well. They're, you're managing uh, their symptoms with medicine. And then if the, if the holes don't get sufficiently small or they really look like they're making no progress towards spontaneous closure by about a year of life, that's when you start to think of, Hmm, this this child might need a surgery to repair it because the big thing that you don't want to miss is the development of Eisenmenger syndrome. So Eisenmenger syndrome is another, I think, important concept to discuss when we talk about congenital heart disease. Eisenmenger syndrome um, classically results from uncontrolled left to right shunts uh, that play out over time. And the idea is that over typically years of exposure to uh, increased flow and pressure, the smooth muscle in the pulmonary arteries hypertrophies. And that results in increased pulmonary vascular resistance, which then results in pulmonary hypertension. Um, but, but once you get that smooth muscle buildup, it tends to be an, uh, an irreversible process. And so if a patient develops Eisenmenger syndrome, you've missed your window. And now, now they have an in essentially incurable disease uh, that you could have fixed with, again, it's an open heart surgery. It's, not, it's, it's nothing to be made light of, but a very safe open heart surgery with essentially 
100% survival and very little uh, morbidity that, that could have fixed that problem. Now, as a general pediatrician, I'm trying to follow these patients and, and worried. And, you know, I'm talking to the parents and saying that, well, these small holes will likely close or we're watching this. Like, should I be monitoring these patients more closely than I normally would on like a general well child check? Or am I looking for their weights if they're not you know, meeting their weights? And at what point should I be saying, well, you need to go back and see your pediatric cardiologist? What are the things I'm looking for as a pediatrician? Yeah, so um, as a pediatrician, um, you definitely want to be paying attention uh, to the growth of, of these kids. You know, weight and growth is like an extra vital sign that we pay attention to, especially in the first several weeks of life. And, um, and these kids, when they have a significant congenital heart defect uh, that's causing uh, that activation of the sympathetic nervous system, that's causing that reflex tachypnea, for example, that's a kid that's going to be burning through calories a lot more quickly and it's not unusual for kids who have significant congenital heart defects to require uh, extra calories in order to put on weight. And so that, you know, that can be achieved by having a mom uh, use express breast milk, and then you mix some formula powder into it to increase the caloric density. That usually works really well. In, in severe cases, we'll, we'll sometimes uh, need to put a feeding tube into a baby in order to really get them to uh, take in sufficient calories. Thankfully, that's, that's not typical, that, that that's a rare, uh, a more rare kind of thing. Uh, but again, the, the idea is sometimes you do those uh, more minimally invasive things like a, uh, like a feeding tube. If you think that there's a chance that, you know, you get this baby to grow, you get them to hang on a little bit longer, that VSD is going to get smaller with time. And then guess what? As the VSD gets smaller with time, their symptoms improve. They don't need as much medication. You can kind of back off on things. And then, you know, eventually you can get them through that without needing a surgery. But that's the whole kind of balance of, you know, what we're looking for in that infant as they're coming back to follow-ups. And so sometimes we'll trade off with the pediatrician, right? So, hey, next week, go see the pediatrician. In two, three weeks, come back and see us. Then see the pediatrician for a weight check and then come back and see us. So, yeah, th those kids who have uh, pretty significant uh, defects, we're definitely keeping a real close eye on them with a specific eye on growth and those uh, symptoms of congestive heart failure that we talked about. And I know one thing that I've learned, and I don't know if this is lore or truth, but that if the murmur is getting louder, that is a good sign that the gradient is higher because the VSD is getting smaller, and that's a reassuring sign. Is that is that true? Yeah, you know, in general, it is true. Um, the other thing that that kind of goes hand in hand with that is you'll hear, oh, I hear, I heard that sometimes really big defects don't cause a murmur because the hole is so big that there's not really turbulent flow. Eh, I don't know about that, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yes, the, the, the general thinking is, is that as that murmur gets louder, that might be, well, it might be the result of that hole getting smaller and therefore you have higher velocity flow going across it, which should make, uh, more turbulence and therefore a louder sound. Um, but I definitely wouldn't put, I would, I would, I would trust, you know, what's going on with that patient's symptoms. Are their symptoms improving? Are they growing well? And that's a probably better indicator of what's happening with that hole. All right. So we won't, if the, if the murmur is super loud, we won't ignore it because we think it's getting better. We'll still, we'll still look for symptoms. Exactly right. Exactly right. I, I yeah. So I, I wanted to mention one thing that I, I really actually meant to me uh, mention earlier on. So we've been talking about congestive heart failure symptoms and, and us in the, in the medical profession, we throw around that term congestive heart failure totally willy-nilly, right? Um, but you definitely have to use some caution and some sensitivity when you're using that term with parents 
because especially if if this is a new diagnosis and all of a sudden you start throwing around terms like congestive heart failure, um, that there is probably no better way to instill panic into uh, into a new parent. So I usually like to be very upfront about that when I talk to parents about it. I, you know, I'll, I'll say, hey, you know, um, you're going to hear people use this term, and I'm just going to throw it out there because it's a scary term, but it doesn't really mean what it sounds like. And it, the term is congestive heart failure. And usually people are thinking about, you know, a 90-year-old guy who's had 10 heart attacks and stuff like that. But, you know, th- this is not, the heart is not failing. It's just a constellation of signs and symptoms that come about when um, when that when this heart is challenged with this congenital heart problem, but there are medicines that we can use to control it. The heart is not failing; it's just some symptoms that we have a a scary doctor term for, uh, and you're going to hear it. But don't worry that your you know child's heart is actually failing. Sure. So let's uh, just go back to the case and diagnose Bart with a VSD. We'll say his symptoms are pretty consistent with one, especially as someone who's made it out of the newborn nursery um, and just in his young, short life. So in this, de- so we do think he's in a decompensated state right now, or he does have congestive heart failure. So how do we actually go about decongesting these patients? And what do you use for medication regimens that you brought up earlier? Yeah, sure. So interestingly, uh, so there, there's a lot of good data, especially from the adult population on using anti-congestive heart failure uh, medication regimens for treating the pump failure type of CHF. So those folks who have, for example, cardiomyopathies or uh, they've had myocarditis with diminished heart function. But we've, we have not been able to prove that those same constellations of medications are necessarily particularly helpful uh, with folks who have congenital heart disease. So I would say traditionally, uh, the, probably the, the tried and true and most helpful uh, class of medications are diuretic medications, usually loop diuretics. Um, like furosemide. Some people will also use more like aldosterone antagonists like spironolactone. But in the not too old days, uh, these kids were routinely treated with um, medicines like digoxin. So the idea there is that you're trying to increase contractility. It's a heart that's under stress. You're trying to support that kind of extra boost of of contractility to, to get that heart to do what it needs to do. But nobody's been able to prove that digoxin improves morbidity, mortality, or decreases uh, hospitalizations necessarily. So we've kind of moved away from using uh, digoxin. And, and part of that is because, you know, digoxin's poison and, and it's a pretty dangerous medication. Uh, and you have to monitor digoxin levels and stuff. And, you know, boy, if it's not, if it's not proven to really make a huge difference, then why are we doing it? And so, so we've in recent years kind of moved away from that. The other class of medicine, I think that uh, is certainly used in the pump failure type of congestive heart failure and it's also sometimes used with congenital heart disease where you have kind of a left to right shunt, for example, in a VSD, are uh, ACE inhibitors. So things like enalapril, uh, captopril in a baby. And, and the idea there is, um, remember, we talked about the difference between systemic vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular resistance. And if blood is going to follow the path of least resistance, well, if you use something like an ACE inhibitor to diminish systemic vascular resistance a little bit, Maybe that would change that balance, that differential between pulmonary and systemic vascular resistance such that the driving force for shunting is a little bit less. But again, nobody's really been able to prove that ACE inhibitors are particularly helpful for morbidity and mortality in left to right shunts, unfortunately. So you'll see them used every once in a while, but not often. I want to put things a little in perspective too. For Bart, he ultimately has a VSD that we've talked about. That seems to be the primary 
cause of congestive heart failure after the CCHD screening, unless you had a very severe ASD, correct? Yeah, that's correct. ASDs, again, even large ASDs, I'd be surprised if somebody presented with congestive heart, heart failure. But uh, the other probably uh, super common left to right shunt that's easy to understand is a, a patent ductus arteriosus, right? And they usually close, but every once in a while they don't. And so a PDA is another is another kind of simple congenital heart defect that can cause a large left to right shunt. And how do you have an approach? As you also mentioned, the the pump failure type heart failure, we haven't really talked about some of those other critical congestive heart diseases. How do you approach the different types of decompensated heart failure? In, in an infant or newborn? Do you have, is, is there kind of a schema or is it memorizing the four T's? Yeah. So, so the, the whole, the whole, I try to avoid lists and, and rote memorization as much as possible. You just mentioned the four T's. I actually think it's the five T's, but I won't tell anybody. <laughs> I, and, I, uh, I always forget that fifth but, one. No, but, well, the, okay. But how about this? So the five T's, okay. Well, what do we got? We got transposition, Trismegalovirus uh, great arteries, tricuspid atresia, total anomalous pulmonary venous return, truncus arteriosus, tetralogy of Fallot. Right? Where's hypoplastic left heart syndrome? Last last time I checked, that was a that's a pretty common. Doesn't start with a T, Mike. We we don't count oh, it. Not what, about a T. Pul- what, what about pulmonary atresia? What about pulmonary atresia? <laughs> uh, like so anyway, like I could go I could go on and on, right? And it's like it's this mindless list. Just like people memorize the mindless list for tetralogy of flow, right? The mindless list for tetralogy of flow is the four things: VSD, overriding aorta, RVH, and pulmonary stenosis. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. What what tetralogy of flow is? It's a very particular kind of VSD. All right. So we just talked about VSD physiology, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Tetralogy of flow is a VSD with some pulmonary stenosis. That's it, right? And, and tetralogy of flow is a good example of, and this is one of the things that makes understanding congenital heart disease so difficult, is that tetralogy of flow is a good example of what we call a spectrum congenital heart defect, where you can have the same diagnosis, but your physiology is going to be very different depending on what end of the spectrum you're on. For example, you can have tetralogy of flow with pulmonary atresia. So your pulmonary valve just doesn't form at all. Okay. If that's the case, all the blood is going from right to left, right? You're getting complete mixing of blue and red blood. On the other end of the spectrum, you can have tetralogy of flow with eh, just a little bit of pulmonary stenosis. What that physiology, that's VSD physiology, right? If the path of least resistance is still out to the lungs, you, you, you will have pulmonary overcirculation and congestive heart failure. So we call that pink tet huh. because you're pink. You're not, you're not cyanotic at huh. all. In fact, you have congestive heart failure. So anyway, um, yeah, the, the, the schemes the schemes to try to memorize different things in congenital heart disease, I think, are uh, dangerous because they make you exchange rote memorization for real understanding. And again, the concepts that that I try to teach when I'm uh, talking about congenital heart disease to my students and residents that I work with, um, it's not rocket science. It's all the stuff that you, that everybody learns their first year of medical school. And just applying it to kind of different and more complicated uh, plumbing is the way that I kind of think of it. That's great. So another case from Cashlight Children. So Helen, she's a eight-year-old girl. She has a history of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is now status post-repair. And Helen is coming to see us due to three days of cough, dyspnea, and fever. She has decreased breath sounds on the right lower lung field, and you were concerned about pneumonia. 
But before we talk about Helen's treatment, let's take a step back and help fill our audience in on hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So um, what is hypoplastic left heart syndrome and what kind of surgical correction did Helen have? Yeah, so hypoplastic left heart syndrome, there's actually a few different ways that you can get to that syndrome, but suffice to say that it's kind of any congenital heart problem that leads to, it's usually some combination of really significant mitral stenosis and really significant aortic stenosis, such that during fetal life, there's just not a lot of blood flow going through that left ventricle. And so we have this no flow, no grow theory in fetal life, where if there's not blood flow through a structure, it just doesn't um, form properly. And so hypoplastic left heart syndrome, the prototype of uh, hypoplastic left heart uh, syndrome would be mitral atresia, aortic atresia. So the mitral valve didn't form, the aortic valve di uh, didn't form, and so your left ventricle essentially didn't form. But but there are there are other you know uh, kind of subtypes where it's oh you know moderate mitral stenosis and moderate aortic stenosis, but you still have a left ventricular cavity that's just not big enough to supply a cardiac output worth of blood. And there's a few other congenital heart lesions that can result in that, but but that's the kind of way to think about it. Because so no matter how you get to left uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, that means that you only have one pump, right? You have your right ventricle. And that's trying to do the work of two ventricles. So, you know, nobody's figured out how to develop a new ventricle, right? Like you can't just like, oh, we're just going to create a new left ventricle and stick that in there. So, um, you know, you mentioned that, that, um, that our patient was quote unquote repaired. You cannot repair any single ventricle lesion. Um, you can only palliate it, which is to say you can go through a series of surgeries to improve the circulatory state but this is not a curable condition. Um, and the, the type, uh, so any single ventricle patient, whether you're hypoplastic left heart syndrome or whether you're kind of the, the, the so-called kind of mirror image of that, some form of hypoplastic right heart syndrome, for example, tricuspid atresia would be the prototype of that where your tricuspid valve doesn't form and therefore your right ventricle doesn't form. Interestingly, whether you start out with a single right or a single left ventricle, you end up going down the same palliation that culminates with something called the Fontan procedure. And, and what single ventricle palliation achieves is it makes sure that your single ventricle is aligned with your aorta and therefore systemic output because you want that pump pump into the body. You don't, need a, you don't need a big, heavy pump pump into the lungs. You really need that pump to be aligned with the systemic arterial circulation. And it eventually uh, achieves a volume unloading of that single ventricle because remember, it starts out doing twice the amount of work, right? It's doing the work of two ventricles all by itself. So the single ventricle palliation volume unloads that ventricle. And the, and the other thing it does is that it separates the blue and red blood so that you're circulating all, or at least mostly oxygenated blood. And so the way that, uh, without getting into too much detail, because you, you, there's a few different ways to get there, the single ventricle palliation culminates, as I mentioned, in the Fontan procedure. And after your Fontan procedure, all of the blue blood, all of the systemic venous return is rooted directly to the lungs without a pump. So your superior vena cava and your inferior vena cava are attached to your pulmonary arteries and the blue blood goes directly out to the lungs without a pump. And then the red blood comes back to your single ventricle and your single ventricle pumps that blood out to the aorta. And so after a Fontan, status post-Fontan palliation, which is now how uh, we'll say it, you basically don't have a right ventricle, right? Like it might've been previously on the right side, but you are now uh, bypassing any right side of the heart 
and you basically the central ventricle is acting as your left ventricle. Is that is that a fair way to conceptualize it? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, and and so you might say, well, huh? If that's the case, well, and, and these guys have normal oxygen saturation, why do we have a why do we bother having a right ventricle at all? Right, and yeah. and so <laughs> so the answer to that question, we we could sit and think about it a little bit, but. But uh, there, there's a couple of there's a couple of uh, major physiologic problems with having your systemic venous system going directly out to the lungs. The first way to conceptualize this, and again, I, I love to bring it back to the basic physiology because everybody, all stu- all medical students, if you're a medical student at some point, you learned about this at some point, and and it's it's not rocket science. It's like basic physiology. But when you review it, you say, oh, right, right, right. So if you think about um, if you think about a normal heart. Uh, with the SVC and the IVC going back to right atrium, you know, well, central venous pressure is in a healthy kid. What, what are those usually like in a healthy kid? Zero to five, something low. like that, millimeters of mercury, super low. Why so low? Well, huh, why is the pressure so low there? Well, let's see, pressure. Pressure is a byproduct of flow and resistance. There's no resistance in the venous system. There's no analog of arterials on the venous side of the system. So what dictates venous pressure is how much volume is in the system and what the venous tone is. What is the compliance of the venous system? Um, but since there's no resistance, the pressures are always very, very low. But if, then if you look a little bit further along in the, in the circulation, in the pulmonary vasculature, well, pulmonary artery pressures are something like, who knows, 25 over 10 or something like that with a mean of 15. Okay, well, why is that? Well, that's because we said the pulmonary vascular resistance is low, but, but it ain't zero. And so you do generate some pressure uh, in your pulmonary arteries. Okay, now if we think about Fontan circulation, SVC and IVC are going directly out to the lungs. Well, what? so then what's a typical Fontan pressure? Is it more like zero to five or is it more like the mean of 15? Well, what dictates pressure? Pressure is a byproduct of flow and resistance. So what's the flow in the Fontan? It's a cardiac output. It's, a, it's an entire venous return. What's the resistance? It's the same as your pulmonary vascular resistance that you started off with. So typical Fontan pressures, 15 millimeters of mercury. Okay. If you were, if you were me or you know, one of your kids had a central venous pressure of 15, what would you expect to see on their physical exam? Hepatosplenomegaly, ascites, pleural effusions, right? All the things that we think about with right-sided heart failure. So essentially, a Fontan circulation obligates you to having a very elevated central venous pressure. And that's one of the reasons why it ain't perfect. Um, the, and the other kind of concept in single ventricle is that if you think about how you or I, uh, if we go out for a jog or something like that, how we augment our cardiac output, well, we increase our heart rate, and that includes the right ventricle pumping faster, which then gives our left ventricle a nice fat preload to be able to, to push out to the body. If you don't have that right ventricle, that means that you're dependent on your venous return to somehow augment in order to increase your preload on the left side in order to squeeze out to the body. But uh, your central venous pressure is dictated by what your cardiac output is. and how, So it's kind of like this chicken or the egg kind of thing where um, it suffice to say that it's a little bit difficult for them to rapidly augment their cardiac output because they're just dependent on that passive flow going from the venous system through the lungs to get to the systemic ventricle to get out to the body. So I think this is interesting in that the Fontan 
average pressure, you say, is about 15 or similar to someone who has typical pulmonary artery pressure. That being said, a lot of Fontan patients do not have edema or hepatosplenomegaly, or maybe I've just done a very poor job of examining them. Does their body get used to it, or does it just have a low threshold for it? Well, so that's that's because I left out one important detail that, that, that was an important advance with Fontan physiology and right-sided heart failure symptoms, I think used to be a little bit more common in this population. But these days, almost everybody gets what we call a fenestrated Fontan. And what a fenestration is, is I, I so when we say the Fontan circuit, that's like the, however it was hooked up, but that that's your superior vena cava, inferior vena cava and pulmonary arteries. That's your Fontan circuit, okay? And there's a few different ways to surgically do that. But um, that's your Fontan circuit. A fenestrated Fontan is when the surgeon places, it's essentially a little punch hole, a little window between the Fontan circuit and the right atrium. And what that does is, and I'm not going to go through the through the, the first year medical student physics of this because it, I do it if it was on a piece of paper because I need to, but there's a way uh, you guys... <laughs> look up sometime. How do you add resistors in parallel? And it's the one over mm-hmm. resistance yeah. total equals one over resistance. Yeah, yeah, that crazy stuff. We're not going to talk about it now. <laughs> but the, suffice to say that when you put that little window in there, it's like putting a really low resistance resistor in parallel with the pulmonary vascular resistance. And what that does <clears throat> is that it significantly lowers the overall resistance in the Fontan circuit. And so your central venous pressures operate at a significantly lower level, you know, maybe 12 or something like that, 11 or 12, but at the expense of a few points of oxygen saturation, because you're essentially getting blue blood that's now mixing into that single ventricle. Mm. And so a fenestrated Fontan, a patient with a fenestrated Fontan typically has an oxygen saturation of maybe like 90 to 92%, but they operate with much better hemodynamics because their central venous pressures are lower. And that's what commonly people are getting now. It's fenestrated Fontans, correct? Yep. Yep, that's correct. Now, the Fontan procedure and these fenestrated Fontans, these are sort of a stepwise su- surgeries, correct? They don't get it all at once and all in like one day. Um, they're they're done over a series of months or years. And, and how long do they last? I mean, do they need to be yeah. redone as they grow older? Yeah, a great question. So um, as I mentioned, there's a bunch of different heart, uh, there's a bunch of different congenital heart diseases that will result in in a what we call single ventricle palliation. And single ventricle palliation culminates with the Fontan procedure. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome specifically requires at least three surgeries in order to get you to through that single ventricle palliation. And if we had the time, and, and again, we did this on video or something, what we could do is we could draw out a diagram of what hypoplastic left heart syndrome looks like. And then this is what I actually usually like to do with my learners is we make a problem list. And, and and as we follow the, the the path of blood going through the heart, we make this list of things. You know, for example, one of you know, one number one might be hypoxemia because we got mixing of blue and red blood. Number two might be single ventricle volume overload. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome has a few specific things. For example, it's a ductal dependent lesion. You need that ductus to be patent. And and as we go through that problem list, I usually put little stars next to the ones where if we don't address this right away this patient is going to decompensate and, and, and very likely pass away. And so the stage one surgery takes care of all of the starred items, the things that are going to absolutely result in a bad outcome right off the bat. Um, stage two is uh, called the bidirectional glen. That's an anastomosis. It's also called the bidirectional cavopulmonary shunt or cavopulmonary anastomosis. So that's 
attaching the superior vena cava uh, to the pulmonary arteries. That effectively volume offloads the single ventricle, but leaves you hypoxemic. And then the Fontan completes the circuit. But um, <clears throat> yes, th many of these different uh, congenital, uh, congenital heart defects require multiple stage surgeries and oftentimes catheterizations in between to make sure that their hemodynamics look good, to make sure that there's not any, um, not any little defects or, or problems that might be able to be addressed by catheters so that the surgery can be a little bit less complicated. And then after, uh, after they're complete, uh, it's not like they're now cured, right? I mean, that they have some significant hemodynamic problems as we just outlined. And remember, especially in the case of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, you're left with a single right ventricle that's doing the systemic work. And that single right ventricle wasn't built to do that. So that single right ventricle is, is unfortunately doomed to fail in the long term. Uh, and these patients will uh, ultimately uh, oftentimes uh, need a heart transplant. And that's only if they can keep the rest of their body in good enough health to be a good transplant candidate. I think that is a really good segue, actually, to how to keep your body in good health while you have all these uh, while you have this process. So are these patients on any chronic medications? And, um, and you know, just like, again, in adult medicine, we talk in heart failure a lot about um, medications that are used to improve mortality. Are there any medications that they're on specifically or any goal-directed medical therapy that you need to be on to, uh, to improve mortality for these patients? Yeah. So, so for our uh, patients who, for example, have uh, gone through single ventricle palliation, most of them are on uh, some form of anticoagulation. Um, you can imagine if you have your your venous system that's directly communicating with your systemic ventricle, that could be a really dicey situation if you get a little clot that forms in one of your, uh, in one of your systemic veins. So most of these uh, folks are at least on uh, an aspirin as a mild anticoagulant. Um, some, if, especially kids who um, have thromboembolic complications, they will be on a more heavy-duty type of anticoagulant like Coumadin uh, or Lovenox. I would say that there is a good number of our single ventricle patients who stay on an ACE inhibitor, uh, again, as a way of, you know, kind of thinking about mild afterload reduction. We're worried about that single right ventricle pumping against systemic resistance. But again, um, we have been, uh, I don't think anybody's been able to show a real morbidity mortality benefit uh, in that population. And again, that, that might just have to do with maybe people haven't, you know, designed the right study yet, or, or maybe it's hey, everybody got stuck on, a, on an ACE inhibitor because they thought it was a good idea. Uh, and so now nobody's really willing to do like the randomized controlled trial, whatever it is. But we just don't have the data, unfortunately, to, to say definitively that any medication is 100% useful. But people would generally agree that um, anticoagulation is a good idea uh, when you have uh, you know, your systemic venous system directly connected to your, um, to your systemic output. And so for patients who have a Fontan or have any other form of congenital heart disease, going forward, what does their life look like? What are the complications? What's the prognosis? Are there other things that we should be monitoring for other than, to your point, anticoagulation? So um, the prognosis for these really complicated lesions is, is probably one of like the most unbelievable success stories in pediatric medicine, um, you know, in, in this generation. This, you know, we're talking about 40 years ago, these were universally lethal conditions that are now uh, being treated with the, this, you know, series of complicated uh, procedures 
where, you know, these kids are now living into their, well, the, the oldest cohort right now is probably in their 40s. Um, so, and th th remember, those were the patients who had the initial, you know, the initial sweep of, of learning how to do these surgeries successfully, right? So people who, for example, are getting their, uh, their single ventricle palliation these days, um, the preoperative care, the interstage care, um, the uh, immediate postoperative and, and, and long-term uh, monitoring is, is so much superior to what it used to be that we can, I think, expect the life expectancy of, these, of this patient population to, to continue to go up uh, in the coming decades, which is really exciting. So returning to our case again, we're concerned that Helen might have pneumonia. Um, and so if we're a generalist and we accepted this patient onto our service, you know, what must we know when treating these patients for infection? Yeah, so particularly uh, our single ventricle patients, because of the physiology that we just described, um, if they have a, you know, SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or, or they become bacteremic and septic, and they lose their uh, vascular tone, they lose their venous tone, that's a patient who is going to become very, very sick very rapidly because in that single ventricle physiology, if you lose your venous tone, you lose that pressure head to get blood through your lungs and essentially your cardiac output just goes down the tubes. So those are patients who um, they actually need a whole lot. They, they need kind of massive fluid resuscitation in order to keep their central venous pressures high because that's, the, that's their preload. That's their driving force for their single ventricle. And so um, one, one um, pitfall uh, that I think people get a little bit nervous about is, oh, we know we have a congenital heart disease patient. We don't want to fluid overload them. But a single ventricle patient who comes in and they're, they're possibly septic, that's a patient who really needs an aggressive fluid resuscitation. Now, <laughs> you're never going to be wrong by calling up the cardiologist and say, hey, <laughs> can you walk me through this, please? Because I don't understand this. And that, that, that's, what, that's what we're here for. I think the other thing that I would say in this case is you have somebody with a pneumonia, that's going to make keeping those central venous pressures uh, high particularly important because now they have a reason for um, having even more elevated pulmonary resistance because they have a disease process going on in their lungs. So that, that's going to be a patient who could get real sick real fast. And remember, um, let's, let's just say that they were able to maintain a reasonable venous tone Anything that increases their pulmonary vascular resistance, for example, having a big whopping pneumonia in there or something, is actually going to increase their central venous pressure, has the potential anyway to increase central venous pressure, which means that they're going to shunt more through their fenestration if they have a fenestration. So you're going to look and you're going to see their oxygen level and you're going to say, holy smokes. So thinking about hypoxemia in a single ventricle patient becomes a very interesting exercise because you're wondering, is it the lungs that are the problem? Is it that they're shunting more through their fenestration? Uh, is it because their cardiac output is low and 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 now you know they're extract you know they're they're still extracting the same amount of oxygen uh, from the systemic vasculature but now you know it's a cardiac output problem so their oxygen delivery is lower so that's a really interesting thing and and again uh, always a good reason to get a cardiologist involved uh, to talk through these issues but i would also just another general point uh, any uh, patient who has either uh, palliated single ventricle disease or who who is um, they're not fully repaired and, and they still have some mixing going on. So they're, they're hypoxemic at baseline. Really important to figure out what is their baseline oxygen saturation? Because if somebody comes in and their baseline oxygen is, is 80 and you put them on a monitor and you don't know that and you say, oh my gosh, the sets are 80, you know, 
intubate this patient. <laughs> Their oxygenation is terrible. Well, no, 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 maybe not. Like 80 might be normal for them. Uh, that's the first thing to say. And the second thing to say is um, whenever these patients who have mixing going on, you know, in other words, they have baseline hypoxemia from their congenital heart disease, uh, we take um, their risk of sepsis is very, very high. Their risk of bacteremia is very high. And so if, if unless it's a very clear cause where, oh, it's a viral syndrome and, you know, we know it's just that, um, we really err on the side of caution and we draw blood cultures and, and cover them with broad spectrum antibiotics if there's any suggestion that they might be bacteremic because, uh, again, they can, um, they're, they're at higher risk of that and they can get sick very quickly uh, if you miss that diagnosis. I'd like to ask you about the oxygen where if you have someone that has a range of 80 to 90 or 85 to 95 that's coming in with a pneumonia, I'd make the assumption, and I'd want you to correct me if I'm wrong, because it's probably wrong, that we would just try to keep them within that goal, maybe be tolerant of a little bit lower given the pneumonia. But can you talk about what the oxygen goal is? And one thing that I think is really uh, helpful to conceptualize, at least for me, is what happens if I don't do that? What happens if I see 80, I freak out, we put them on, or we'll, we'll blame the intern or the nurse, you know, they put them on oxygen and get a, a high SAT, what happens and, and what do we need to do when that happens? Yeah, so remember in a mixing lesion or a right to left shunt, you can give them oxygen until the cows come home and you're not gonna get their oxygen level to normal, right? You cannot overcome that uh, mixing of, of the deoxygenated blood, which is why in that, I think it's that another, another list guys, a uh, list of five things that cause right. hypoxemia, shunt is one of them. And, and shunt, you cannot fix with oxygen. So the, 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 the okay, so the, this is, so the, to briefly answer your question, you can't, you can't mess up a single ventricle patient just with oxygen. It's just not going to happen. The only time that you, that you have the potential to cause some trouble with oxygen is one in a simple left to right shunting lesion. So let's say a big VSD, uh, giving that patient oxygen might actually further decrease pulmonary vascular resistance and cause an increase in the left to right shunt. So you might make their congestive heart failure a little worse. Are, are there other cases where oxygen is harmful? Should we just be putting everyone on nasal cannula just to just for comfort until the cardiologist can get there? Yeah. So the, the other situation that could be dangerous if you have a newborn infant um, uh, where and, and it happens to be a ductal dependent lesion, remember one of the things that uh, stimulates ductal closure is increased oxygen tension. So um, you'd want to be careful there. But remember, you know, in a newborn where you're, where you're uh, worried about congenital heart disease, you're probably calling the cardiologist in anyway right there. So you're probably not going to have to make that decision on your own. When I was, uh, the, these are bringing back like PTSD moments. One that I love that I, I wanted to share because I think it's true to share experiential moments, not to hog airtime. But as an intern, I remember in the pediatric ED, a patient with a Fontan came in with an ammonia or a viral gastroenteritis. I forgot exactly, but was very dehydrated. And I think this is where the med peds harmed me. I was like, well, he has heart failure. So I just gave him a little bit of fluids. And the ED attending looked at me and was like, what do you think his heart looks like? He needs the fluids. That's how it's going straight to the heart. And that's when I learned what a Fontan was. Um, but I'd also say that we, I remember in the NICU, we had a simulation that I think was for a fun intellectual exercise. It was not a real simulation, but it was a Norwood patient, a status post Norwood, who then a nurse puts on 100% oxygen. And there's, anyway, it was a disaster. I, did, I got none of the correct answers right on what to do in that case. 
Okay, so see, so you mentioned the status post Norwood. So it, the, what the Norwood achieves is it aligns that right ventricle with the aorta. So all of a sudden you have right, your single ventricle goes to your aorta. Great. And the classic Norwood has what's called um, a modified Blaylock Thomas tossing shunt, which is that you can think of it as um, a synthetic PDA. It's just a, it's just a tube from your subclavian or your nominate artery into your pulmonary artery. And it's put in in a way that uh, they put it in just the right size so that you get enough pulmonary blood flow to give you a good oxygen saturation, but not too much pulmonary blood flow to put you in congestive heart failure, right? Theoretically, if you gave that patient, you know, 100% oxygen, could you, you know, where they're okay at baseline, but you flood them with oxygen, you lower their pulmonary vascular resistance, and now you get increased flow through that shunt because you've lowered the pulmonary vascular resistance, that could theoretically cause problems, uh, A, because they would have pulmonary overcirculation and, and signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure. But importantly, and this is a, this is a little um, sneaky thing about that physiology, when you have that synthetic PDA that they put in to maintain pulmonary blood flow, it can also cause coronary artery steal. Because if you think about it, your coronaries are supplied during diastole. This thing is shunting throughout the cardiac cycle. And if you lower the resistance huh. going down that shunt, you might actually be stealing blood from the coronary arteries huh. to go out to the lungs. And that that would be a no-no. Yeah. But that's, I mean, man, that that's a tough simulation. I mean, that that that, that that's something that it's very humbling. You know, <laughs> yeah. So if you're if you're a Peds cardiology fellow and you get that, okay, that that's fair. But I wouldn't I wouldn't beat yourself yeah. up too much about it as a as a med peds yeah. resident. I mean that, that that's getting pretty. That makes pretty, me feel uh, better. Specific. They wanted me to give like calcium, and I had yeah I had no idea what was going on. I <laughs> just kind of went back into my corner and eating my sandwich. <laughs> um, great. And so I think so we talked about oxygen, and it sounds like if in a single. Uh, ventricle, we're okay giving oxygen if it's a, a ductal dependent lesion that can be a little more worrisome. Fluids, not only safe, but uh, mostly safe, but are actually very important. And then one other thing that I think comes up to mind is some of the basic medicines that we prescribe, you know, um, things like uh, ibuprofen or NSAIDs. Are those safe for individuals that have certain types of congenital heart disease? So things like NSAIDs, you got to be careful about it, especially our kids who were keeping on uh, aspirin for uh, anticoagulation purposes of uh, giving them NSAIDs like ibuprofen can actually inhibit that platelet inactivation uh, pathway. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> this is where my, yeah, yeah. my first yeah. year physiology is failing yeah. me. But, uh, but no, that, that, so that would be a situation where if somebody's on aspirin for anticoagulation, you would not want them to be on NSAIDs like ibuprofen as well. And, you know, I think, I think um, like any patient, you're going to want to really look into the history. You know, do they have a history of other comorbid conditions from their heart lesions? So, for example, do they have a history of renal insufficiency or, or, or any kind of, you know, hits to the kidney in the past, uh, be it from their bypass run, be it from a low cardiac output type of syndrome? And, you know, just be mindful of those sorts of things when you're, when you're prescribing your kind of routine meds. But that, that's going to come about just from, you know, doing your due diligence and taking a careful history. One other question that I just popped up, you had mentioned of certain organs that can take a hit from underlying congenital heart disease. Brain development is something that's come up in patients with pretty significant congenital heart disease. Is that correct? Is that something that's closely monitored in neurodevelopmental outcomes? 
100%. So there's been a lot of work done on this. And, um, and logically, it actually kind of follows what you would expect. So the, the simple, uh, so to speak, congenital heart diseases, atrial septal defects, ventricular septal defects, PDA, that sort of thing. Um, the, the risk of developmental, uh, neurodevelopmental uh, problems is not very high. But then on the other end of the spectrum, for example, single ventricle type lesions, um, uh, the incidence of significant neurodevelopmental uh, problems is probably uh, in excess of 50%. Wow. Um, and then, you know, you can think about different grades of heart disease, of complexity of heart disease kind of leading up to that, and, and the other patients kind of fall in the middle. So, so you know, uh, patients who have something in the middle type of complexity, for example, tetralogy of Fallot or something, uh, there, and again, chromosomal issues aside, because uh, if, if, some some uh, chromosomal uh, problems will have associated with them congenital heart disease. But if we take that out of the mix, patients who have, for example, tetralogy of Fallot might have an incidence of, of neurodevelopmental problems, you know, on the order of maybe 25% or something like that. And, and that goes, you know, that, and that, that's a wide range of things. It could be something uh, like a spe- something mild, like a speech delay, and then, then they catch up to something that's much more, you know, pervasive and difficult to deal with, like uh, a severe learning disability, an autism spectrum disorder, something like that, that, that has a much bigger impact. And it's hard to predict uh, how, you know, how, how any individual kid is going to uh, turn out. But because of this incidence, we definitely pay closer attention. And there's a little bit more rigorous uh, neurodevelopmental uh, testing that a lot of these kids will undergo to make sure that they get the right supports um, as they grow. And one of the things that we try to do with the show is also draw light to some of the racial disparities and when you talk about having access to all the right resources and and these long-term um even neurodevelopmental outcomes or any outcomes are, is congenital heart disease and what what's the overlap with with some of these racial disparities and and congenital heart disease and are there social determinants. Um, yeah the social determinants of health are there are, are there clear connections and and are there things that people are doing to to try to mitigate um, its exacerbations of, of these racial disparities? Yeah, so the, so definitely this is something that people have thought about and, and have had experience with. Um, there are definitely, in, in a few of these studies that I was talking about, uh, for example, uh, uh, there have been a, a series of studies on single ventricle uh, patients to try to see what are the uh, factors that seem to predict uh, outcome, that seem to predict things like morbidity, mortality. And socioeconomic status is, is definitely uh, a factor that uh, plays out negatively uh, on, on patients when they come from a lower socioeconomic status. Uh, they seem to have uh, worsening outcomes. I, I, don't, I don't know that, you know, obviously not every study has looked at that as a, as a risk factor, but the ones that have have identified um, socioeconomic uh, status as, as definitely a factor um, that links in a way that you would expect it to, unfortunately. Um, Another thing uh, uh, Sam might remember, um, so one of the other things I do besides pediatric cardiology is I do uh, some other education in the first two years of uh, uh, undergrad uh, medical education at UMass. And uh, one of the things I do is I I run a course called Integrated Case Exercises, where we try to pull together threads of uh, of thought from different places and, and show students how these different things kind of all fit together into clinical cases. And that includes things like um, medical ethics and um, uh, um, uh, some of the factors that we're talking about now, socioeconomic status, um, social determinants of health. And one uh, case that I absolutely love to do uh, with the first year students is uh, there's a case that we go through where we talk about how 
the arterial switch was developed for transposition of the great arteries. And this was a, uh, the arterial switch was first successfully completed, I think in 1975 or 1976. And uh, um, the idea basically is that it took, uh, it took a lot of practice and uh, surgical innovation to develop the microsurgical techniques to transplant the coronary arteries onto the neoaorta. When you do, when you switch the big arteries, then you have to switch the little arteries, the coronaries. And that was the that was the hitch. That was the real difficult part. Um, and if you before the arterial switch, we had a procedure called the atrial switch, which was a complicated uh, couple of uh, procedures that had a very high. They actually got the mortality quite low. But the morbidities were very, very high, especially in the long term. And so people knew that theoretically the arterial switch was the superior way to handle this, but nobody had ever done it before. And if you talk to people who trained in that era, they will tell you that um, there were children who went into the operating room for an atrial switch procedure for their transposition and came out with an arterial switch for their transposition of the great arteries. This was, you know, before the days of IRBs and informed consent. Mm. And I think people would generally agree that uh, families from, um, you know, uh, lower socioeconomic status, uh, non-English speaking families were definitely at a disadvantage when it came to being able to advocate for themselves and really understand what was going on uh, when this was going on. The terribly ironic part about this is that these days, nobody argues with the fact that the arterial switch is the superior procedure for transposition of the great arteries. You know, we're talking about less than 5% mortality, uh, less than 5% long-term morbidity. I mean, the, the, it, it's an absolute slam dunk as being superior to what was, do, what was done before. But at what ethical cost? did that development take place? And that, that's a really, that's a really um, uncomfortable thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I think, you know, uh, I'm unfortunately not surprised to, to hear that story, though I haven't heard it. And I imagine that a lot of congenital heart disease research has been at the expense of communities of color that haven't advocated for themselves. I will say it is nice to, to mention, as I'm sure a lot of people are aware, the also glorification of people like Vivian Thomas, who was one of the um, contributors to some of the major breakthroughs in congenital heart disease treatments. Um, and the uh, uh, BT shunt, nope, uh, the full name yep. of the Are BT you, shunt. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, so you, see, you, you, you may have, I, I did mention Thomas's. Right. So people used to call the BT shunt the Blaylock Tossig shunt. We now more uh, appropriately call it the uh, Blaylock Thomas Tossig shunt. The Thomas in that is Vivian Thomas, who, who as you point out, uh, did a lot of the groundbreaking work to develop that surgical procedure. Yeah, that's great. Um, we have gotten a lot of great information and also want to be very conscious of your time because this has um, been a lot of great stuff. As we wind down, um, are there other take-home points that you want our listeners to leave with or anything else we should know about taking care of patients with uh, congenital heart disease? Uh, I would say that... Um... Uh, we in pediatric cardiology, we tend to be pretty descriptive in our notes. So like I always think about when I'm taking care of my patients, I'm afraid that they're going to show up to the ER one day and, and nobody's going to be able to understand what the heck is going on with them. So we tend to be pretty detailed in terms of spelling out what the physiology is. And while a lot of people find congenital heart disease 
uh, intimidating. What I would say is it really boils down to a lot of basic concepts that we've all learned first year of medical school and not crazy complicated ones, right? Things like pressure is a byproduct of flow and resistance, you know, things like that. Things like Laplace's law, things like, uh, you know, ventricles respond to volume challenges with dilation and pressure challenges with concentric hypertrophy. You know, they're not like crazy complicated things, but these themes just come up again and again and again. And, and once you just get comfortable applying those simple themes, those simple concepts to more kind of complicated plumbing, that, that's what congenital heart disease is all about. And it's a lot of fun to do it. This is great. Are there any things that you'd like to plug or any resources that we should um, shunt our listeners to? Uh, <laughs> oh no! Uh, well, that that that's uh, that was a shameless pun right there. But uh, uh, I I do not have anything in particular uh, to plug other than uh, other than just the field in general. I mean, I just have so much fun uh, with peds cardiology, congenital heart disease in particular, and uh, I love working with uh, medical students and our residents uh, to kind of go through these problems. It, it's just a blast and. Uh, makes my job uh, really just uh, super rewarding and super fun. So I'm happy to do this kind of thing anytime. Amazing. We are so grateful to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. It's been it's been a lot of fun. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please, subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thank you to our producer for this episode, Dr. Sam Masser. We would also like to thank our social media team, who is also always putting out great content. Thank you for joining us. We've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke, our guest producer, Sam Mazur, and Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you, and good night.